0: You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and this is the final week of the Super Bowl champion LA Rams training camp here at UCI. Big crowds have been turning out every day over the last three weeks to watch these top athletes do what they do best, play football. And today, my special guest is Rams chief operating officer, Kevin Demoff, and my goal is to hear all about his life, his career, and what he does best, Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you today? It's
1: great. Fellow Kevin. So always fun to, to get to do that. So we'll, we'll have some fun. This
0: sounds good. Thanks, Kev. Yeah, so everybody out there, don't get confused. We got two Kevins going today. Very good. So, Kev, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? So I grew up in Los Angeles right
1: here, uh, <laughs> born and raised. So it's great to be back home and be part of the Rams. So uh, as a kid, I always thought I'd be a sports broadcaster. So that was the goal and would practice broadcasting, go to Dodger games, UCLA games, anything you could find myself out of be there with a pen practicing to be a sports broadcaster following games playing fantasy football doing mock drafts so it's not a huge stretch that i wound up you know working in sports i always thought it would be more on the media side but but here we are on the team side and it's worked out just fine so born and raised in angelino second generation uh my father's lived here his whole life. He'll be 80 this year. My mom moved here in the 50s, so you know, as much as you get a second generation Angelino, that that's where we are.
0: Yeah. So you remember when the Rams were here the first time, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I, when I grew up, I went to a bunch of games at Anaheim Stadium. Remember them playing there? Remember the rivalries against the 49ers and some of those great Monday night games and battles in the 80s? I had a Jim Everett poster on my wall. So you know, certainly remember the Rams well from growing up here and being a fan. Gotcha. Did you play sports in high school at all? Or you know, I, I kind of dabbled. Uh, played water polo, tennis, volleyball, basketball. None of them well. I uh, wound up joining the newspaper and being sports editor and covering all of that, but never good enough to do anything. Just off to the side.
0: So gotcha. Uh, I'm kindred spirit with you there, man. How about? You kind of were hesitant to get into sports out of high school. I I understand. Is that, would you say that? Like you didn't major like in business right away. Can you tell us about your undergrad?
1: Yeah, no. So I was a history major with essentially an art history minor. I think I was one class short of the art history minor. So I didn't even take an econ course. So winding up on the business side seemed very foreign to me at the time. Probably thought I'd go into journalism, broadcasting, chance I'd become a lawyer. Those were all the places I thought you could wind up. But I wound up graduating from college in 1999, so I did what everybody else did in 1999. I went to work in the internet. Great boom bust uh, opportunity. I went to work for a company called Broadband Sports, which was probably 10 years ahead of its time. It's probably, if you look at now, Bleacher Nation, SB, Bleacher Report, SB Nation, kind of Athletes Tribune, a little bit of what The Athletic is. It's kind of a meld of all of that. I was the 30th person in uh, 1999. Nine months later, there were 300 people. Uh, and it was a hot IPO on Wall Street. Nine months later, they were out of business. So, you know, truly watched the whole the whole cycle. I kind of left at the apex um, nine months in, but it was a great way to get out of school and see the dot-com boom-bust yeah. world up close. A lot of great friends, a lot of fun building stuff and screwing things up, but never expected to wind up on, on the team side.
0: At that point, do you go to grad school, or what do you do from there?
1: So I, one of my jobs that wound up being at Broadband Sports, back before sports teams had websites, we wound up building the Dallas Cowboys website from scratch. And wound up launching that in about April of 2000. They were one of the first teams to have a website. From there came a number of teams in the NFL that were looking for us to do the same for them. We started talking to the Dolphins, the Raiders, the Packers, Uh, Those are the ones that I remember and made a connection at the Raiders who wound up coincidentally recommending me for a job in the Arena Football League at the time with the Los Angeles Avengers who were an expansion franchise playing at Staples Center. Casey Wasserman, uh, who's now running the LA 28 Olympic bid, had just bought the team, was getting started. Uh, We got connected and so I jumped in the summer of 2000. I went to work for the Arena Football League. So the Los Angeles Avengers for four years, kind of doing a little bit of everything from Trading players, signing players, hiring coaches to picking up Chipotle and, you know, (laughs) sandwiches and doing dry cleaning and checking players in at the airport. So minor league sports, you got to do a little bit of everything. So I did that for four years before heading back to grad school.
0: Okay. And did somebody recommend, hey, you know, things are going good here, but you really need to go to grad school or?
1: (laughs) You know, it was uh one of those epiphanies towards the end of my time in the Arena Football League. I was very similar to what happened in the internet company. It was games were being broadcast on NBC, franchises were selling for tens of millions of dollars, and I really didn't understand the economic model, and I couldn't understand how we would make money, where it would come to be, you know, but everybody around me kept saying, you know, this is a, a rocket ship, the same way they said the internet company, which was a rocket ship, which ended up going boom, bust, and I, I kind of looked and said, you know, I have no background in economics, no background in business. You know, maybe I should go learn that before I question business models and and how they work. Turns out the Arena League was headed for, you know, a a flame out and, and and a tough ending, but took the opportunity in 2003, was getting married, applied to business school, wound up going back to Dartmouth for two years for business school. So it was a great chance to pivot a little bit in the career to go find myself and see if sports business was going to be the right path for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And your dad is a legendary early sports agent. Do you feel like you, you know, was he pivotal in your career with with advice or was it not so much?
1: Uh, very pivotal if you want to say the advice was don't become a sports agent, right? <laughs> so, you know, growing up in a house where you had a father who who was a public defender first, then became a lawyer, you know, representing athletes, wound up becoming, you know, an attorney for sports players and a lot of NFL players. Uh, I grew up around the NFL, around the game, so had a great introduction, but very much saw the agent side of it and what it was like for someone who, you know, represented players. So you'd be at our house and you'd hear the conversation from his perspective about, you know, what the players wanted, what the agents wanted. And I always kind of imagined myself what the other side of the conversation looked like from a team perspective, what teams were trying to get out of it and what they were trying to build. And, you know, the one thing, my dad represented a ton of great players, but he could never get them, you know, he could never solve the other pieces of the roster. He could never help build the organization. They were always kind of at the mercy of what happened. And and I always thought that frustrated him a little bit, just that he couldn't go do for a damn Marino he represented. He couldn't get him that last piece to get a ring. He represented John Elway, and at the end of his career was able, you know, they fortunately won two Super Bowls. But, you know, growing up around that, I I envisioned I was never going to become a sports agent. It wasn't what I wanted to do didn't really think I'd go to the team so I just was very curious about it and so when I wound up going to the Arena Football League and being on the team side I very much got hooked on you know this is a a great career path it's a fun thing to do I love competing I love being part of a group that wins together that tries to do things together and finish that but but realize business school is probably the right path if I wanted to continue to grow in the industry rather than just kind of float around
0: so when you come out of grad school you get hooked up with the tampa bay buccaneers right away or yeah
1: so the person who recommended me for a job with the la avengers was a guy by the name of bruce allen who at the time was essentially the general manager of the raiders he got hired as the general manager of the buccaneers in 2004 and basically offered me a chance to go to tampa and i said you know i really think i need to go to business school and this is a better career path for me and and we'll see. So, you know, Bruce in enterprising fashion said, even better, you can work for free for two years while you're in business school and then you know, <laughs> see if you want to come join us at the end. So basically, you know, that's what happened. I went back and got my MBA from 2004 to 2006. And then I graduated on Saturday. And my first day in Tampa Bay was the following Monday. So uh, glad it all worked out with that path. I uh, had an unbelievable opportunity to go into the NFL. There were some times in business school I kept thinking maybe I should go do something else in business, become a consultant go to Wall Street, do something entrepreneurial. But then all my classmates kept asking me how they could get into sports, and I figured if they wanted into sports, I probably shouldn't be looking to get out of sports, and and so plunged in with two feet uh, into Tampa Bay.
0: Gotcha. And it sounds like, from what I read, that you were doing contract negotiations, salary cap management, strategic planning, both college and pro scouting. Wow, you you were in training to become a COO, it seems like.
1: (laughs) I was really trying to become a general manager at the time, Um, and – you know, was, was on that path doing contract negotiations, player personnel, scouting, you know, really on, on the football side, always with an interest on, on the other side and came to realize in that time period with the amazing, talented people we had in Tampa Bay. Uh, I think we had three or four general managers come out of that front office that I was no better at picking players, doing contracts, understanding that world than they were and probably far worse. And so that, You know, my talent might be more aligned on trying to blend the football side with the business side and being able to speak both languages a little bit. Just dangerous enough on each side to understand one another, but there aren't a, there aren't a ton of people who, who have a football training background who can also, you know, speak a little of the business language. And so with that, uh, was able to parlay that into an opportunity, started to think about what was next beyond the Buccaneers and wound up being really fortunate
0: coming to the Rams. And how does that Rams opportunity come about?
1: I got an opportunity at the end of the 2008 season. You know, we had some pretty good years in Tampa Bay. Got a great opportunity to come interview with the Rams for essentially the job I have now, which was, you know, COO, executive VP of football operations, but really trying to be a bridge between the two sides, overseeing the business side, working with the football side to improve the product. Georgia Frontier had just passed away. Her two children, uh, Chip Rosenbloom and Lucia Rodriguez were running the club at the time in St. Louis. Uh, We have been connected through a mutual friend, wound up interviewing for the job. You know, I was pretty young at the time, 30, and didn't really think much of it, but thought it would be a great chance to go interview and, you know, learn what that was like and didn't expect to get the job. And, you know, lo and behold, I'm not sure if anybody else wanted the job or their first 500 preferred candidates passed. But uh wound up getting offered the opportunity to come to St. Louis uh, in this current role in, in 2009.
0: Now was this after the Rams had won the Super Bowl in St. Louis? Yeah,
1: about a decade after the Rams had won the Super Bowl. So actually, you know, I always remember, you know, when I interviewed with them, they had gone, they'd had the great run early in the decade. They'd gone three and thirteen in 2007, two and fourteen in 2008. I remember telling, you know, my wife and kind of friends who asked me about the job. Well, you know, team's pretty bad. What do you think? And I said, there's nowhere to go but up when you're two and fourteen. And we promptly went one and fifteen in 2009. So. there is somewhere to go, you know, but up when your team of fourteen. So I always tell people now, if you say there's nowhere to go but up, you better be winless
0: the the year before. Wow, wow. So there's something about thirty with this Rams. You know, you were thirty, and Sean McVay, the head coach, was thirty. That's um, a little bit of a trend here.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I know you had Les Snead on last week. He was forty when we hired him, so he probably was the old, <laughs> you know, the old group. I, look, I think, and probably one of the things that. drew me and us to Sean is some of us who got opportunities younger knew that there was potential there I got the job I, I wasn't ready I didn't deserve it but you know was fortunate to go in a situation where I could kind of learn on the job make some mistakes you know the team was up for sale in 2009 so it was really kind of a strange year to kind of learn the staff meet the staff understand it try to figure out you know the lay of the land but very fortunate Stan Kroenke was the minority owner at the time he owned 40% uh he had a right to match any bid for the team. Oh, uh, which he did in two thousand ten and he became the majority owner in August of two thousand ten, so uh twelve years ago this month. And, you know, from there kind of was fortunate to to have a, a boss who came in who owned multiple sports teams, you know, the Dever Nuggets, Colorado Avalanche, the Colorado Rapids had bought a piece of the Arsenal t- soccer team in the English Premier League. So a an owner who had a ton of experience you could lean on you know to really learn and shape your career and was fortunate that that he was willing to let me learn on the job with him.
0: No. Oh, well, excellent. I know the move from St. Louis St. Louis that you know that was a difficult time for them. When does that start? You know, was that always well, if things don't work out here, we'll go someplace else. When does that enter the the thought process? You
1: know, when I took the job in 2009, I knew there was a clause in the lease that would be evaluated a couple years later that team could stay in St. Louis, the team could leave in St. Louis. And so through the Rams lease with St. Louis, there was every 10 years, there was a clause that said the stadium had to be in the first tier of NFL Mm stadiums. So basically that meant top eight, but there were some, some definitions of what that meant. And so there was a process that began in 2012 that city of St. Louis would put forward a bid to improve the stadium, uh, their bid was $125 million. The Rams put forward a bid of what it would take to meet the requirements. That was $700 million. It went to an arbitration uh, in front of a group of arbitrators in 2013. They could choose one or the other. They could choose somewhere in the middle. They wound up choosing the Rams bid of $700 million to improve the time the Edward Jones domed to a first-tier stadium. The city of St. Louis then had two options. They could either make the improvements at $700 million, and the team was obligated to stay for the next 10 years. Or they could decline to make the improvements, which meant that the team essentially could go year to year starting after the 2014 season. So in the summer of 2013, uh, they declined to make the improvements, which mm-hmm. essentially made us a free agent within the next 18 months. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, you started to understand what were the the options uh, that could come your way. What you could do in St. Louis to build a new stadium, whether that made any economic sense. What you could do in Los Angeles or any other cities. And in 2014, uh, the opportunity to buy the land at Hollywood Park. The 300 acres there on the racetrack, which had just closed down, came available. And that really began the process of starting to understand, you know, what a new stadium and team could be in Los Angeles. But the one thing that, you know, as much as you may want to buy land and envision the Rams returning home, it still takes the approval of NFL ownership. No team had moved in in 20 years. You wound up with the Raiders and the Chargers also trying to build a stadium in Carson. So a really arduous process in 2014 and 2015 that wound up, Thankfully, with the Rams coming back to Los Angeles in January
0: of 2016. From your job standpoint, are those, you know, is that are we talking about a heck of a lot of work?
1: Yeah, I would say those, you know, those two years were the hardest two years of my career, um, and probably the adding the year we moved back. So 2016, 2014 to 2017. Uh, there's a lot of gray hair on this head, and it came from probably those, you know, three years. You're trying to understand what your options are, and I, I think we always looked at it that. The Rams, as an organization, will be better off through the process. We wind up with potentially a new stadium in St. Louis, potentially a new stadium in Los Angeles or elsewhere. As an organization, we would be in a better position than we were uh before. But trying to navigate, you know, nobody had moved a team in two decades. Uh Nobody had been successful in building a new stadium in Los Angeles in over a century. You know, the Rose Bowl and the Coliseum were the two stadiums that were built in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um You know, I'd grown up in Los Angeles and seen lots of people try and fail, uh, many powerful people. I mean, you could go from, you know, Marvin Davis and to, you know, Ed Roski, uh, Michael Lovitz. You know, you could name, you know, AEG downtown at Farmers Field. Lots of prominent people had tried and failed yeah. to build NFL stadiums in Los Angeles. So by no means was just acquiring land and wanting to build a stadium a slam dunk. And meanwhile, trying to operate a team... You know the best you can in a different market and navigate that was was really hard it was a challenging uh two years professionally it was a challenging two years personally but you always kind of looked at it that the rams as an organization would be better off you know at the end of the process and even i would say as it came down to the very end if we won the vote in january of 2016 to move to los angeles that wasn't the end of the saga that was the beginning you know in January 12th 2016 we get voted on you know January 12th you're the St. Louis Rams January 13th you become the Los Angeles Rams and you know three months later you have to be practicing and playing in Los Angeles in preparation for you know another season and I would have loved to have been an expansion team and had two years to kind of build up your team and your roster and your stadium and do all that but you know we were going to be playing games selling tickets you know moving and trying to be competitive in 2016 so that year It was our first year here at UCI, which was a great home. And we were actually here four weeks that year just because we were trying to build our practice facility up in Thousand Oaks. Really long year, tough professionally, but I think the success this team has had since that year was born by that group coming together, trying to figure it out. We had a tough 2016 going four and twelve. It started off three and one. You know, great crowds at the call, Sam, great energy, and really fizzled by the end of the year. But I think the identity of this franchise was kind of forged through you know, that tough year, and since then, it's been a pretty good run.
0: Yeah, very good. Excuse me just for a moment, sir, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, the Super Bowl champion L.A. Rams open training camp here at UCI two weeks ago, and I've been doing a series of interview shows about that. And today, my special guest is the big kahuna, the man who reports to owner Stan Kroenke and keeps everybody happy, Rams Chief Operating Officer Kevin Demoff. So what is so hard and daunting about building a new stadium? Can, can you just give us a sense of that?
1: Well, I think you start with, you know, Stan Kroenke's vision from the beginning at Hollywood Park, 300 acres, which is, you know, if you put it in comparison, it's bigger than Disneyland, yeah. right? And it's, and by the way, that's not just Disneyland, it's Disneyland, California Adventure, downtown <laughs> Disney, right? It's not just, you know, the park. So you take a size, that park, trying to build a huge, you know, not only stadium, but we have a music performance venue, a million square feet of retail, an office building, apartments. You're really trying to build a mini city. So you're starting to lay that out. But you're also trying to build a stadium, you know, his goal to us was you can't undershoot Los Angeles. This has to be a stadium that, you know, was one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, an icon in the city, an architectural marvel, you know, and, you know, one of the things when I look at SoFi Stadium now we don't have just one thing that's never been done before. We have about a hundred things that have never been done before oh. you know in a stadium. And you start just with the design of the stadium. It's a hundred feet down into the ground because of its proximity to LAX. Most normal stadiums are about three hundred feet tall. Ours is three hundred feet tall, but the height limit at the site is two hundred and ninety feet. Um except the site sits about a hundred feet above sea level. So you had to figure out how you jammed 290 square feet into 190 square feet that meant digging down
0: 100 feet right into the ground the previous was that an easy way to get to the did you it, did you know that was the answer right away
1: it, we knew that was the answer right away and, and the faa actually was pretty quick to oh. to understand that answer we had some other challenges with the faa and radar that came up later but the faa was very clear like you can build this as long as it's not taller and our building wound up being no taller than the old racetrack grandstand at hollywood park it basically sits at the same height as the is the Kia of form which is right next door you know so the height really was never an issue it was just an issue for us to solve and it actually wound up being a great part of the design of SoFi Stadium you walk in on level six you know the stadium kind of unfolds beneath you and it allowed the building to be much more low slung and architecturally designed so you're now 100 feet in the ground which is you know the previous record was 30 feet in the ground uh, in Minnesota so you're now more than double and I mean, you think about anywhere in the world, digging a hundred feet in the ground, especially on the site of an old racetrack, you never know what you're going to find. You know, so thankfully we didn't find anything that stopped progress, but you know, we're digging this hundred foot hole, uh, by 22 acres in, you know, 2016, 2017, and we get the second rainiest winter, That's you know, right. in Southern California right. history. So we now have <laughs> the world's largest swimming pool, you know, almost seven, you know, million cubic tons of dirt was taken out filled up by about 3 million cubic tons of water and you know so you had to excavate that <laughs> you get a few
0: gray hairs from yeah. that <laughs> you
1: get a few you know and that puts you behind schedule right. a little bit you start to get in these other challenges that just come with designing a, a stadium you know of this size this immense cost you know and you know we actually I give a great credit you know AECOM Turner Hunt who did uh, built our stadium you know legends helped do the project like they did a great job managing through the process but you know, it was just complex, a lot of different things, a lot of moving pieces and, you know, trying to build a stadium in, you know, the middle. You know, I was like, you don't ever want to drought, but maybe the year we were
0: you right, know, building right, a stadium would right, have been
1: the worst, right, right. wouldn't have been the worst thing. And so, you know, you're always just managing through that. You're trying to play, you know, a season at the Coliseum, which itself was undergoing construction at the time. So you felt like everywhere you were going, there was a, a hard hat you know you're trying to build a stadium that's never been done before you're trying to do it in a city that's never done it and you know just a lot of complexity to it you know a ton of gray hair uh you know we wound up over budget a year behind schedule because of the rain you know so and then you wind up opening the building in covid which is a whole different you know story and playing empty for a year but you know i guess all is well that ends well yeah
0: did you go through multiple different designs to get to the final product?
1: You know, we actually landed on the design pretty quickly. I would
0: say it was probably the
1: second or third iteration. So mm-hmm. HKS was our architect, they did an amazing job and one of the things that was important to us and you know, which is a little bit counterintuitive people, was to put a roof on the building. And there were two reasons. One, you know, while the weather is great in Southern California, we wanted to capably host any event of the world, from a Super Bowl to the World Cup to college football playoff in WrestleMania, which we have coming this year, to the Academy Awards to concerts you know, to the Oscars, to anything, you know, you could think about, and you need a roof, you know, some things can play through rain, some things you can't, you know, but then the challenge really was, you want to put a roof on the building, but you really didn't want to build a retractable dome in Southern California, the weather is so great, so you want to make sure that you were taking advantage of that, so we designed the first stadium uh, that is truly open air, there are no walls in our building, so it's completely open air, so basically, the roof acts as a huge canopy covered patio to 22 acres. So when you're in the stadium, it feels like you're completely outside. There's breezes on a hot day. It's hot on a cold day. It's cold truly is the best of Southern California where you're weather protected from rain should it ever come, but you, you get to enjoy the environment completely. You know, I think what I love most about the building when people are in it, they say this feels like Southern California, you can see palm trees, you know, in the end zone, you can see the ocean from the upper deck, truly a great building. And then the other piece, I mean, from the roof, you know, 100 million people fly over our stadium each year into LAX. You know, so the roof gives you one of the world's largest digital billboards. And even, you know, it's great for advertising for SoFi Stadium, but even, you know, this past week, uh, we had a tribute to Vin Scully up on the roof. And oh, so yeah, when you're yeah. flying into LAX, you can Very see cool. this amazing tribute to Vin Scully. So a lot of different great purposes. And, you know, so we came upon that pretty quickly, and it's worked out pretty well.
0: Oh. Is, is the the roof uh, billboard concept is it a profit center?
1: It, it is not. Um, uh, it probably could be if we used it differently. And, uh, you know, people pay us, but it is one of the world's largest LED screens. Yeah. Um, we could absolutely make it a greater profit center, but right
0: now we just use it for really cool content. Yeah. I, I've recently talked to an architect who was involved with the building uh, of the roof, and the roof is not attached to the actual building. It's a separate structure, right?
1: Yeah, so the, the stadium is actually three separate buildings in one. You have a retaining wall. Uh, that holds back all the dirt around the 100-foot hole. So that's a separate structure. The stadium itself, the stadium bowl, is a separate structure. And the roof itself is supported by 38 columns. is a separate structure. And that, you know, in the case of a seismic event, all three structures work independently. So theoretically, if there's a major earthquake, the safest place to be is about the 50-yard line at SoFi Stadium. Wow, wow. Did you ever consider that the roof would be solar? You know, we didn't mainly because, and this gets in actually into the FAA issues, the Uh, reflections uh, to pilots um, trying to power through the ability to do it. There were just a lot of different challenges with with making the roof solar. The roof is actually, although it serves a unique purpose, the roof is actually made of a material called ETFE, which is much more popular in Australia, New Zealand, and Europe, which is a clear plastic um, which is about as thick as a piece of tape, but you can drive a semi over it, so really strong plastic. Uh but it's got a solar frit which reduces about sixty five percent of the solar rays coming in. So actually we don't have an air conditioning system in our building. We use passive airflows and breezes to cool it down, which we wouldn't be able to do if, if it was just an outdoor stadium and be a lot hotter. You need a lot more energy and air conditioning, but you know, you can be in our building even on a pretty warm day, like the Super Bowl where it was seventy eight degrees a kick, I think one of the warmest super bowls ever. And, you know, it felt great, and beautiful breeze. And, and so that roof absorbs a lot of energy and saves a ton of energy costs.
0: Gotcha. How about, is it the head coach, Sean McVay, and the GM, Les need? are they the two people who report to you or are there other people reporting to you?
1: Yeah, so on the football side, uh, there are three people who really report to me. The head coach, Sean McVay, the GM, Les Need, and then our VP of football and business operations, Tony Pastors, who kind of oversees. Our salary cap and some of the business side of the football side, I call it. So, you know, those three nominally report into me, but really, I mean, they report into the owner. You know, my job is to help them get what they need to succeed, you know, budgets, revenues, you know, if they ever wind up stuck on a decision to try to help them, you know, think through it. But when you have, uh you know, the three of them do an amazing job building this roster, building this team, I kind of just sit off to the side and say, you know, I don't want to screw things up. Let me get out of the way. So, you know, involved in the hiring of all of them, but really just serve as a resource for them in case they ever get stuck. But thankfully, uh, pretty sharp guys who have figured it
0: out on their own. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about finding Sean McVay? When does his name come into the picture? And Yeah. So, I mean, it
1: really, I think you have to go back to, you know, my first coaching search we ran in 2012 when we hired Jeff Fisher. Uh, at the time, who was the most sought after head coach, you know, in that cycle, you know, had great success with Tennessee, real coup for the Rams to get him. But when we went through that process, I remember, you know, in my notes writing down, you know, we made a head coaching change at the end of the year, saying, you really need more time to make that change. And, you know, we should make this decision as soon as we know when it's going to happen. And so unfortunately, you know, with Coach Fisher in 2016, when it became clear, we we're going to need to make a change in 2016, pulled out that notebook from 2012 and said, You know, don't make the same mistake twice, like make this decision with time. So we made the decision early December, mainly to give us time to start to do research on on candidates to put us ahead of, of the cycle. And, you know, it's really not fair to a sitting head coach to be doing research on other coaches and trying to figure out what you do while they're still coaching. Mm -hmm. So we made that change in early December, you know, and one of the first names that popped up when you're asking people around about candidates was Sean McVay. Mm -hmm. And everybody would say, you know, if you kind of ask people, you know, you'd ask them about candidates or different ideas, and you'd say, who's the person who we're not considering? And they'd say, well, there's a 30-year-old kid at Washington who's going to be great. He's just really green and probably too young. And after three or four times, you kind of took that note down and said, well, you know, let's let's do some more homework on Sean McVay. And the more homework you did, the better it came back every time. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to talk to him pretty early in the process and just blew everybody away. His energy, his conviction, his ability to communicate he checked every box that, that you really needed. And while, and I think we all admitted, you know, he might be young. He might be a year or two away. You know, at the time, you know, it's hard to think back now. It, you know, the Rams hadn't had a winning season, even a 500 season in a decade. So if you're being a realist with yourself, you're were saying, we're probably not going to win the Super Bowl in 2017 anyways. But the one thing that you were convicted about with Sean McVay was he was going to be head coach in this league in the next year or two. And if you didn't hire him, you were going to be playing against him. <laughs> and, you know, I think we all looked at each other. And the other thing that helped, we interviewed 10 people, a lot of whom became head coaches. We were all, you know, Les Snead, Tony Pastores, and myself who did the search. We all had Sean as a clear one. We couldn't even agree on who two and three were. And so that was a pretty clear indicator to us that, you know, he was the guy. And we talked to a bunch of players in Washington at the time who said he was ready to be a head coach. And, you know, we were fortunate to have an owner who was one to take a leap of faith on a 30-year-old head coach, which was unheard of at the time. And, You know, lo and behold, we win the division the first year and have immediate success and, you know, have never looked back. Uh, Five straight winning seasons, four playoff appearances, three division titles, two Super Bowls and a Super Bowl title later. Uh, Been a pretty
0: amazing hire, what Sean has done. Do you remember the first time you guys talked? Anything particularly stand out from your first meeting or your first talk?
1: Well, I think any time you... And this is probably, too, whether you interview for any position in the world. When you're meeting with someone, you have a pretty good sense within the first five minutes of whether you want to learn more or whether you wish you hadn't done this interview and, you know, can you go on to the next one. And I remember with Sean, there was just something you kind of sat up and you're like, okay, is this amazing? But you were curious whether it was just a brief flash of, you know, 30-year-old or whether he could sustain it. And he just had this unbelievable way about him, which has never changed. He's the best communicator I've ever been around he has a a vision, you know, and people give him credit for calling plays, for being smart. Like, he knows how to work with people, how to work with players, to articulate a vision, how to be a great listener, how to take feedback, and that was all very clear in that first conversation. I remember walking out of that first conversation, and being like, and, and I, I think I remember Les needs said it best. He's like, "This is our guy if we have the guts to hire him," you know. And uh-huh. you know, you you walked into that conversation interview with saying, "How on earth can you hire a 30 year old head coach?" And <laughs> you walked out being like, "How on earth can you not hire?" you know, Sean McVay. And one of the things people always ask now is, you know, how did you know? And I always said, all you have to do is look at his success in the first fight. It wasn't, we didn't, you know, it's nothing we did to make him successful. It just took someone actually going and looking, you know, for him to be successful. And we were thankful. He didn't interview. The only other team he interviewed with at the time was the San Francisco 49ers much later in the cycle. I think had people done the homework and interviewed him, he would have had every opportunity, you know, that was available in the NFL that year. But, uh, we were fortunate, uh, kind of he fell in love with our opportunity. We fell in love with him and, and the rest is history. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI conversations. My special guest today is Los Angeles Rams football team chief operating officer, Kevin Demoff. We've just finished talking about how the Rams found head coach Sean McVeigh in 2017. And now we review that amazing Super Bowl season last year. Here we go. How about in terms of reflecting on last season? Do you have any takeaways from? You know, obviously, let's do that again. But you know, do you? How about lessons learned from last season?
1: I there are no lessons learned. I mean, I quite frankly, you know, last year was a magical ride that yeah. you couldn't script if you tried. You know, the first year your new stadium's open, the first year, you know, an NFL stadium's ever been open in in Los Angeles that was built for the NFL. Uh You work hard to bring a team back to open a stadium to build a stadium. And your first year in it, you not only, you know, win the Super Bowl, you win the Super Bowl in your home stadium, which right. had never happened until the previous year, right? It's crazy. Right. 54 years, it never happens, and it happens back-to-back years. You become the first team in history to play a championship game at home and a Super Bowl at home. You beat your bitter rival, the 49ers, to advance right. to the Super Bowl. You right. win the Super Bowl at home. Right. <laughs> you know, the lesson learned is that's never going to happen again. Yeah. And you just look back and enjoy the ride, and you're grateful. You know, anytime we learned this in 2019 going to the Super Bowl in Atlanta – Anytime you go to the Super Bowl, so many things have to go your way. You have to get so many lucky breaks. Everything has to break just perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, and you wound up with such an appreciation for teams like the Patriots that went nine times, the 49ers who did it five or six, the Cowboys, Steelers, you know. And you know, last year at every turn, it just it was magical watching the fan base come out and you know seeing it transform before your eyes. And you know, you pinch yourself. I was at a charity event last night honoring Cedar Sinai. In our building, They were honoring Andrew Whitworth and, you know, kind of the Rams. Andrew Whitworth wins Walter Payton, man of the year, mm-hmm. then plays in the Super Bowl, first person ever to do that, you uh-huh. know, wins the Super Bowl going out. And, you know, Andrew and I were kind of standing there looking around and saying, it's hard, really like your first time back for an event in the building, not a concert, but a Rams-ish event. Yeah. And it's hard to believe it all happened. Yeah, You know, when, when you kind of look around and, you know, we were fortunate enough to be wearing our Super Bowl rings and, you know, looking in the stadium and, you know, I, it still was something I... I don't think I'll ever believe happened. Yeah. Uh, you'll grow much later in your career and pinch yourself. Uh, it was just a magical season. And, you know, one of those things I think that will change football in Southern California forever brought our community together, watching it, you know, the week of the Super Bowl. This was such, you know, the fact that Los Angeles hadn't hosted the Super Bowl in 30 years, you know, and how much the city shined that week, how much SoFi Stadium shined. You know, I think it was football on its biggest stage. We had an opportunity to go play in it, to make plays, and, you know, even now to think about Matthew Stafford and Cooper cup, making those plays to win the game, Aaron Donald with the sack, uh, it brings chills, you know, it'd be great to go try to do it all again. Um, but it'll never be like last year in SoFi stadium. Even if, you know, we're ever fortunate enough to get a chance to play another Super Bowl at SoFi stadium, the first year your stadium's open to go have done that, uh, to watch Stan Kroenke and Sean get to hold the Lombardi trophy there with the players with Andrew Whitworth and Aaron Donald and Cooper cup and Matthew Stafford. It, magical it's the only word you can come up with
0: fantastic you know in your position as coo when they about two-thirds of the way through the season they they lose those three games in a row what 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 did you do did you do nothing did you what what you know and anything
1: yeah i mean it was a crazy year when you look back on it you know we started seven and one uh we had the best record in the nfl time then we go winless in november we lose three games we have a bye week uh, two of the games are in primetime Sunday night and Monday night. One is a national game in green Bay at 4:25. So a lot of eyes when you hit that rough spell. And I always say like, when you talk about my job, you know, when you go through a stretch like that, your job is just to be there for the coaches, for the players, for the group, you know, how can I help you? How can I support you? You know, what do you need, you know, to help get out of this? You know, it's just to be an ear, you know, it's more a sounding board, a sympathetic, you know, listener, you know, you're not coming in with ideas. Like you're not going to change it. And I think, you know, Sean will talk about this, the consistency of this group, how they worked each week. You know, they were the same group each week. They were the same group the next week. And, you know, I remember we talked a little bit, you know, the Buccaneers, Tampa Bay, and the year before had been 6-5, and five, had their bye, you know, had lost a couple of games, including one to us in November. They had their bye, and then they came out and won, you know, five, the last five games and won in the playoffs and, you know, won. And we talked you know, a lot about that as a franchise. You know, we were 7-4. and four. You know, the crazy part, we started 7-1, and one, we were still the 5-seed because Arizona had beaten us and had, you know, the division title. When we finished 7-4, we were still the 5-seed. So we'd actually lost no ground in the playoff race. We had just played, you know, pretty poorly. And we said, maybe we can go on a run in December. And then we won five games in a row. Coming off that, we lost a heartbreaker in Week 18 to the 49ers, which let them into the playoffs and kind of knocked us down from the 2-seed to the 4-seed. Of course, it wound up being, you know, a blessing in the size. They go to Dallas, they go to Green Bay, beat those teams. We get a chance to play. The NFC Championship at home against them. But you're just there as, you know, truly as a sounding board and, you know, helping them think through, reframing it positively. And, you know, players and coaches did a great job of being themselves and, and writing the ship. And, you know, Sean will always say, when you go through a season, you're going to find out the most about your team during adversity. And that was, you know, the only time, one of two times only in Sean's five years we've had a three game losing streak. And, you know, true adversity and our, our players came through with, you know, shining colors.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ch- champions stood up. That's that's what it takes for ch- champions to work through adversity. I loved Les last week t- saying that we don't look to just grind through adversity. We look to learn and go higher to be stronger.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I think, you know, the team embraced it. And even last year, you still at the tail end of COVID. You know, we had a fully vaccinated team last year. We had had two players test positive and you know basically two years and then you know the night before our biggest game of the year really at the time a monday night game in arizona where if they win they basically win the division we lose five starters to covid you know yeah. jalen ramsey and tyler higby and rob havenstein and, Henn- and you know and i remember matthew stafford being like we've got this it's fine and we actually played our probably our best game of the year that night upset arizona you know and really set ourselves up well and then we lost 30 more players in the next three days to covid wow. you know game the next week against seattle be, winds up being played tuesday at four o'clock you that's go from having two right. players test positive you know in two years to 40 yeah you know in in four wow. days which was you know as we all dealt with omicron and what it was and it was definitely eye-opening to us how different you know this could go through a fully vaccinated team but that that kind of weak stretch not only did you get after the three games but you try to right the ship but then you're dealing with the, a covid you know, true COVID nightmare. You learned a lot about our team, our players, their resiliency, and you know, we grew through that. And I th- they, there's no chance we won the Super Bowl without those struggles in November and kind of the, through those two COVID games.
0: Yeah, and the great attitude that you know everybody from the top down seems to have this this winning attitude of it's not me, it's we. Yeah, I mean, Sean's saying is we, not me, and that yeah. that permeates
1: the organization but this is the most selfless group of individuals ever been around and highly competitive uh you know huge egos i would say about winning um but selfless and it's a rare combination where everybody knows what their role is it's excited to come to work and and work together and and we'll go try to win and you know as less will say dominate their role in the best possible way And when you put 250 people in an organization with that mindset, uh, great things can happen.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was writing a little bit about an intro or something, and and I, I put down, originally I put down humble, and I was like, you know, it's not really humble, but it's because of this ego to win, but. Again, kind of going back, it's all about us. It's not about me. It's about us, and uh, it's 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 a great winning attitude, and it's contagious not only for the team but for the community. Yeah, I
1: think. I think one of the great things there's a shared humility about this team, not about talent or capability. Everybody's got a pretty healthy ego and wants <laughs> to compete, and you know you'll get that from us on occasion, but it's about the team and it's about winning together, and I think that's what you saw from our organization, from ownership on Dallas here pulling together. Winning a Super Bowl, it really took everybody to do it. And, you know, you have to love to win. you got to wake up and want to beat everybody else and want to do it together. But, you know, there's – I think one of the things Los Angeles has come to love about team you have your stars, a Matthew Stafford, a Cooper Cup, Aaron Donald, some of the hardest-working, most humble superstars. But they are some of the best players in the game. And I think that ethos from Sean McVay, Les Snead, Stan Kroenke on down is really what differentiates – you know our team versus some of these teams in the past where we have some of the best to do it in the world, but you'll never see them say that publicly, you'll never see them say it privately. they just go about their work and, and do it in the best possible way and I'd like to think that that's what people see in our organization a truly great you know organization that's always striving to get better, but one that people enjoy working with and and seeing every day and I think you know even reflective here of the crowds at u c i and that relationship with fans uh it's been amazing,
0: yeah fantastic. I know your job can't be easy. What are the challenges of your job?
1: Look, I think the challenges of our job are quite frankly, you know, I believe building an NFL stadium and having the opportunity to move a team back to Los Angeles is the greatest opportunity in sports in many decades. And so, to me, it's you know, what Stan Kroenke said that first day, undershooting Los Angeles and you know not achieving our full potential and reaching what our actual goals are in Los Angeles. And I always say, if you If you think you know what you can achieve in Los Angeles, you're selling the dream short. And even, you know, six years in now at the start of our seventh season, you know, we're just scratching the surface, I think, of what we can be as an organization, what we can mean to this community, what we can do for the fan base, you know, growing kids. I think this franchise should be one of the world's greatest sports franchises, you know, up there with soccer. When you talk about Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Arsenal, the Cowboys, the Lakers, the Yankees, the Dodgers, like this team should be in that pantheon. Um, and you're going to have to work relentlessly, you know, to make sure that happens. We lost 20 years where the team wasn't here, and you know, set the NFL back many decades. Not in terms of overall NFL fandom, but in terms of adopting a true team and growing around that. And you know, that's going to be a challenge. You know, we need another six years like the last six years, and then another 12 like the first 12, and you know, so on and so forth. And I, when people look back at this team in, you know, 2032 and 2042, I want it to still be growing, to still be hungry. You know, and I still think that there's room to do more here in Southern California and globally.
0: Fantastic. Do you model some of the European soccer teams that have a worldwide recognition? Is that a conscious thing that you guys have looked at? Absolutely. I mean, I think we're fortunate enough, you know,
1: with Stan Kroenke owning Arsenal. It's a great example just to look at, you know, in London, one of the world's great sports teams, the international following you know, they have, and you can follow bits and pieces, right? You know, one of the great things when you look at any team that has successfully grown into a worldwide brand, you know, it's come with championships. It's come with superstars. It's come with humility and continued success. It's come with, you know, feeling accessible to fans and really engaging with fans and doing it, you know, on a year in and year out basis. And, you know, I, I truly believe you can look to those models and it's not just about, what you can do in Los Angeles. This is one of the world's greatest international cities, a huge multicultural city. You know, our stadium is in the flight path to LAX, the number one destination from Asia, number two destination from Latin America. If you're not taking full advantage of that, you know, we have rights now to market. The NFL opened up international rights last year. We got rights to Australia, to China, New Zealand, to Mexico. You know, growing our brand in those markets. But if we're doing it right, you know, this should people should be wearing Rams hats, you know, in singapore and in helsinki you know and you know in you know lagos nigeria 10 years from now that's that's when you know you've done it right gotcha
0: gotcha how about in the digital age you know when i know many young people play madden football but maybe don't watch football any any direction there that that you're looking at. Yeah,
1: you've got to meet young fans where they're out right now. Whether that's on TikTok, on Instagram, you know, whether it's gaming online through through Madden, whether it's games like Fortnite or you know other games that come alive, you know, yeah. that, that people play, you know, you start to think about you have to find fan, you know, people, kids who grow up these days. I have two teenagers. They're not growing up the way, you know, in the 70s, 80s, where you rooted for a team, passed down your generation. You know, they're following their favorite players on social media. They're watching snippets of games on their phones. You know, maybe they're streaming a game while they chat with friends. It's a different world and you're going to have to, you know, our goal is to, you know, really have one of the best young fan bases in the world. But to do that, you're going to have to go find them, you know, where they're at. So, you know, this week we're dropping our first NFT, you know, I mean, you're trying to find ways to reach that fan base in a very different way than, then I would say you or I would do it. And a lot of times our, our marketing team will bring me an idea that I just don't understand, and they'll kind of be worried that we can't do it. It's like, if I don't understand, that means it's probably a good thing. So, you know, that means we're probably doing something
0: right. How about any light moments? Any, anything come up that, you know, that you can think of offhand? Like, oh, uh, like, I don't know, any stories that you have from... Pro- probably
1: a ton. Uh, probably yeah. not many that are suitable for radio, right? So. <laughs> Uh, you know, look, this job is is a labor of love. We have a great group. I'm so fortunate to get to come to work with, you know, 300 people every day who make a difference. And, you know, all of the moments are light. And even, you know, I would say the, the highlight of a career was getting to go to a post-game party and hug every member of our staff and, you know, tell them they're world champions, to hand them rings. And, you know, a lot of light moments of that, a lot of hard work that went into that. And, you know, the chance to go do that all again is, I think, what gets us out of bed each day
0: fantastic they talk a lot about the top players what you're looking for in terms of talent speed quickness agility in terms of front office talent can you just describe a little bit of what you're looking for there
1: yeah i think it's you know i would say we're looking for the best athlete you know whether it's in marketing communications sales it doesn't have to be someone who's worked in sports people who are bright people who have a passion people who are great interpersonal skills right you have to fit into our culture you have to be want to sacrifice yourself to the greater good you know ego doesn't play well in our building you have to be a team player you have to be willing to collaborate you have to be willing to think uh, outside the box is a cliche but think a little bit differently about how we do things push the envelope that's why we tend to hire from other industries not sports um you know we're the only organization i know in you know male professional sports the majority female on the business side a ton of great young rising stars there so you know, we'll look for talent anywhere we can find it. We're so lucky to be in Southern California. There's such amazing people, you know, that you can hire here of so many diverse backgrounds, you know, you know, from gender, sexual orientation, thought, background, countries. Um, you build a rich tapestry, and if you want a fan base that is, you know, multicultural, diverse, and different, it's got to start with the employees you have. I would say the most important fans we have are our employees because if they're not happy, if they're not fulfilled, there's no chance our fans are going to be fulfilled.
0: Is the SoFi Complex complete yet, or is it still? <laughs> it may not be
1: complete in our lifetimes, right? I mean, so wow. I mean, you're, we're opening up the apartments this year. The retail is starting to come online, probably by the end of this year. The new home of NFL Media and NFL Network is complete next door to the stadium, so that started opening for broadcast last year. Uh, we'll break ground hopefully on a hotel in the coming year. You know, we're entitled for 15 million square feet. Right now, we've only got about five to six, so you're going to see it probably triple in density over time. You know, we're fortunate the Clippers are coming next door at the Intuit Dome across the street, so that's gonna help spur development. So, you know, that, that front door of Inglewood and, you know, the city is is gonna look different. And I would say we're the we're gonna host the opening and closing ceremonies for the twenty twenty eight Olympics. And you know, I think if you look at twenty twenty eight between, you know, the tens of billions of dollars going into LAX and the surrounding area, you know, tens of billions of dollars in our development, you're probably gonna see a thirty to fifty billion dollar new front door you know, to Los Angeles that will welcome visitors from around the world. And I think it'll be fantastic.
0: Wow. Thanks, Kevin Demoff, the COO of the Los Angeles Rams. Sir, I've been with your team for the last three weeks while you've been on campus. It is really impressive from the top to the bottom. I'm impressed. Best of luck for the season. Look forward to it.
1: Thank you. And thank you to the UCI community. It's always a great stay here. Great facilities. Nobody here has anything to do with the
0: weather. That's pretty good, too. It's always a joy to be back here. Thank you again to Los Angeles Rams Chief Operating Officer Kevin Demoff for all his insights and stories into his amazing career and how the Rams organization works. If sports is entertainment, the Rams are creating a compelling spectacle. From winning the Super Bowl last year, to amazing players like Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, and Matthew Stafford, to the state-of-the-art SoFi Stadium and that dynamic young leader head coach, Sean McVeigh. Wow. That's an amazing wow, wow, wow. The Rams completed their annual UCI three week training camp today and now move up to Thousand Oaks to their home training facility. They will have three preseason games, and their first regular season game is Thursday, September 8th at SoFi versus the highly touted Buffalo Bills. Go, Rams! I would also like to thank UCI Athletics for putting on one heck of a training camp and going all out to help KUCI gain access to the Rams while they were here. Kudos. And now, turning the page. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot-zot-zot everyday anteaters. If you'd like to hear an encore of this program or any of my past programs, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at KUCI.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a very pleasant good evening. Keep working hard. It will pay off. And now to close the show out until the top of the hour, my show band leader keyboardist Fred Kaplan from his classic CD Signifiance.